Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Lenovo. At CDW, we get putting productivity within reach of remote employees. That's why I'm WFC, working from couch and moving everything within arm's length, like the microwave. Lunchtime. You should talk to the experts at CDW. They can orchestrate a more efficient workspace solution using light, powerful devices from Lenovo to keep your teams productive from anywhere, couch included. Yeah, but do they have grabber claws? Whoops. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Learn more at cdw.com slash Lenovo client. Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we, we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the u.s what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app hey guys thank you as always for downloading uh, i got to meet a bunch of fans of the podcast in austin uh, last Sunday, a bunch of people came out. People have been coming out to shows more and more. This podcast is catching on more and more, and I'm getting to see and meet more of you guys. Um, always super smart, very cool people, and so it's nice that we're building this little community. Um, uh, you may have noticed, some of you uh, may have noticed if you have iPhones, that we finally fit, fixed a glitch that we were talking about. Uh, we mentioned before we thought it was fixed. There was an updating problem with iPhones, and uh, producer Ramin Nazer kind of finally figured out what was going on, we think. Uh, it appears that way from some of the feedback that we've gotten. So some of you, uh, some of you may have subscribed to this podcast a long time ago, forgot about it, and then all of a sudden 
got an update with a whole bunch of episodes. Um, and they are uh, not new episodes, but they're new to you. So thanks for joining me once again. And thank you to Ramin Nazer for pulling all the weight on that end of things. Go to RameenNazer.com and check him out. And if, uh, speaking of which, I the main reason I wanted to mention it was because if if you are experiencing any issues with the uh, with uh, any of the app updates or anything like that let us know uh, the feedback is very very valuable it's the only way we're going to find out it's the only way we're going to improve um, especially because uh, I'll have a, a little more uh, to say about this later on but uh, I, I believe in about a month we're going to be launching a nice little uh, marketing campaign thanks to a fan of the podcast um, who, uh, well, more, more details on that later. But, um, but so the reason I bring it up is because if you go to the herewearepodcast.com website or, uh, and have any suggestions, you know, thousands of eyes are better than four, Ramin and I's, and uh, any suggestions at all, any glitches, any problems, Please let us know so that uh, next month when when uh, we start getting new uh, new fans of the show out there, they have a smooth running podcast with a nice looking website. We've gotten a lot of compliments on the website so far. People seem happy with it, but if there's anything that you can think of at all it is very much appreciated i try to take all of your feedback to heart i love it when you guys write um i i hope that i wrote you back i tried to write back every single person um hopefully you didn't get slipped through the cracks but i try to stay on top of that pretty well if i if you didn't hear back from me just write me again um, other than that, uh, uh, that's about it. This is a this is a really great episode today, guys, and you guys are going to like it uh, very much. So enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Hill, who is Associate Professor of Evolutionary Social Psychology at TCU here in Fort Worth. Thank you, Sarah, for joining me. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I told her how nervous I was about doing (laughs) intros for everybody and how often I screw them up. I think the last one that I did, I had to re-record like five times because the guy had a really tricky name that I couldn't even tell you what it is right now without (laughs) referencing it. Uh, but Sarah Hill, that's an easy yeah, one. Yeah, Sarah Hill is easy. <laughs> I like to keep it easy for people. Um, so, uh, so when I emailed you, uh, you told me that um, some of the work that that you do that you're um, that you like talking about uh, is is about life history and how it relates to kind of evolutionary psychology and social psychology, obviously. Um, so, could you just? Uh, I, like I said before, uh, off the air, we we I think we've touched on this a little bit, but we haven't really um, gone into depth into explaining this. Could you just give my listeners just a general overview of what you mean by this life history theory? 
Well, life history theory is just a theory that describes the fact that organisms each have a limited energy budget, right? So each one of us um, has to make trade-offs about how we're going to be spending our time and allocating our energies. And life history theory was originally developed as a framework to understand differences that we would see between species in how we allocate our energy. So, for example, you know, if you look at a guppy, right, it has this very short lifespan. It develops very rapidly. It begins reproducing very early. So after a couple of weeks of life, it begins laying eggs. It lays a ton of them, right? And the idea here is that it's having lots of babies as a means of hoping that at least one of them will survive into adulthood. Right? And on the other end of the life history continuum, you have something like, an, like a human being or an elephant. Yeah. Right? They tend to take a long time to become sexually mature. They begin reproducing late in life. They have very few number of, you know, very few offspring, and then they invest very heavily in each. Don't elephants have to, isn't it like almost a three-year-long gestation period or something like that? Yeah, that you know, I don't know what it, it is. I know it's like, like over it two years. Yeah, that just sounds terrible. Crazy. I've had two kids of my own, and like, if it went that long, I'd say about halfway through, I'd say, fuck this. <laughs> Forget this. Like, I'm done. Forget about this whole thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and half an offspring doesn't do anybody any good. And so, um, so it, it, it was a Originally developed to try to understand like why you know the mosquito is different than the honeybee, which is different than the Atlantic salmon, which is different than the elephant and, and human beings. But um, more recently, uh, researchers have begun to apply this to humans and trying to understand differences that we see between people. Right, so all of us of the same species, can we use um, sort of the the cues in an organism's environment? So, for example, with people, looking at our different social environments that people inhabit. Um, and how those should shift how organisms allocate their energy across their lifespan. And so the idea is that when you have an organism or a person who's living in an environment that's harsh, uh, meaning that there's like a high rate of external risks of mortality, so things that are outside of yourself, um, when you have a high mortality rate due to causes that you don't have any control over, those types of environments should favor um, a faster life history strategy, right? And the, the idea being that if there's a high risk of mortality for things that are outside of your immediate control, or if you're in an unpredictable environment where you don't know what's going to be happening next, that these types of environments should favor rapid maturation, um, earlier timing of first reproductive event, and then a greater you know production of a greater number of offspring. And the idea, of course, being that if you sort of pursue this type of a strategy, that you're going to be more likely to at least have one descendant, um, you know, in the face of this really you know tough type of an ecology. Mm-hmm. Right. And on the other end of the continuum than our organisms that inhabit or people who inhabit um, a more benign, safer types of environments, more predictable environments. And in these types of environments, um, you tend to see that uh, people or the organisms that inhabit these environments um, are characterized by a slower life history strategy. And a slower life history strategy just means one where an organism takes time developing so that way it can develop a more robust, competitive type of a phenotype um, as a means of, um, you know, increasing the likelihood of its children surviving by way of greater investment. Mm. So instead of it being a quantity strategy, it's a quality strategy. So if you can mm. think about the differences that you see, for example, in uh, like Africa, like sub-Saharan Africa, where you have like famine and drought, and you have people there having, a, you know, a pretty substantial number of children, 
Um, and this is a way of sort of hedging their bets, right? Like hoping that at least one of these children, you know, despite the fact that people are dying due to these causes that they don't have any control over, that at least one of those children will survive into adulthood. It would make good sense. Right. To just have one child and save all your money to send your child to Harvard and all of this, and then the child dies of famine. It just is sort of like a bad idea, right. evolutionarily speaking. Well, because I guess intuitively, like from an economic perspective, you would right. think it would be the opposite, where you would think it would be Bill Gates having right. uh, 40 children or something right, like that right. and, and and people in poverty having one or two or you know whatever right. their right. Uh, resources uh, seem yeah. to allow for yeah but w- when you're in the type of an environment where you can't know that any unit of investment is actually going to translate into anything because it's unpredictable the types of things that can cause early you know early death um, and uh, when the mortality rate is high, um, and you don't know what's going to happen next. It doesn't make sense to, you know, just have a few children because the risk of mortality, you know, due to these external hazards is so high, and then you could end up biting the evolutionary dust. Mm. Um, so it's sort of like a, it's almost like a, a bet hedging strategy where you're having, you know, a greater number of children, just sort of hoping that one of these will survive these horrible, you know, or unpredictable circumstances in the environment. Um, and then on the other side, you get what you tend to see on college campuses, right, which is like where you have children um, who are invested in very heavily by mom and dad, and mom and dad are continuing to invest in these children, right, these young adults, um, by giving them a very expensive education. Um, and all of these things are done as a means of increasing the competitiveness of these offspring or these kids, right? So the kids come to college to get degrees, so that way they're more competitive for jobs, so that way they can get resources and then, you know, uh, sort of increase their reproduction that way. Um, and so, uh, so, so these are two, like... And, and it's one of those things where everything exists on a continuum, right? So, you know, we say like a faster life history strategy is characterized by earlier pubertal maturation. Yeah, I remember when I first that. started reading about evolutionary psychology and getting really into it years back, I remember, I didn't know if it was just speculation at the time or how well tested it was, but the, but the idea of people in uh, lower socioeconomic um, environments and, and places with kind of higher murder rates and whatever else have uh, the the women end up going through puberty uh, a lot earlier. Right. Yeah. It's totally interesting because that's you know part of this faster life history strategy is that you begin you know you begin you go into maturation relatively rapidly to get yourself ready to reproduce sooner so that way you can have these children, you know, and, and again, hoping that at least one of these children will survive into adulthood and then be able to pass on genes of their own, right? And mm. because they don't have the luxury of sitting back, right, and enjoying this long, ju- you know, prolonged juvenile period before they have to start going into the grown-up world, right? Whereas in the, on college campuses and, you know, around much of, you know, the suburban USA, you know, we tend to see these more slow strategies where people have fewer children, they take the luxury of taking a long time to develop, and then they begin going out and trying to compete for resources and reproducing themselves. So it's sort of like two different types of strategies um, for getting your genes represented in future generations. So... I- is it is it understood kind of how this how these psychological mechanisms are getting these cues from the is this like an epigenetic effect or oh boy yeah that's a, that's a tough <laughs> this question is a very yeah, complicated, yeah yeah well because um the the answer is that that no matter what you would say whether it's like epigenetic effects or um, if it is, um, you know, just like uh, in developmental effects, we're getting these cues from the environments and it's 
playing an impact on sort of how your um, brain develops and that, you know, this plays a role in that um, or what's going on in your current environment, sort of shifting you in one way or the other. All of these things likely play an important role in sort of determining how these types of um, how these types of processes occur. Like one thing that we do know is that the that the early life environment appears to play a really important role in guiding these different types of developmental outcomes that we see. So, for example, when you see um, people who are sort of like faster strategists, right? So people who you know um, go through earlier puberty and exhibit some of these changes that are these um, behavioral. Uh, traits that are sort of consistent with a faster life history strategy, so um, more impulsivity, um, less of an ability to delay gratification, you know, earlier reproductive timing, riskier sexual behavior. Um, we know that the uh, child's early life environment plays an important role in sort of setting the groundwork for these types of outcomes. Mm. So, um, for example, research finds that like early father absence, generally before the age of 12, is something that's very predictive of both early puberty and then also um, of precocious sexual behavior. Right, And when this occurs later on in life, it appears to have less of a deleterious effect. So it's not as bad right? if dad is gone um, when it's a little bit later on in the child's life. It appears that the early, um, you know, the early life environment might be what sort of sets somebody down a certain developmental trajectory. And then it's difficult, like once you're down that developmental tra- trajectory, to, um, to have your sort of strategy set change in a really you know, dramatic way. Mm. Right? So people... You know, in in adulthood, who grew up in um, environments that were um, more stressful, more unpredictable, they seem to have in adulthood like a residue of their early life environment. And you find this in all sorts of different ways. You find this in terms of looking at sexual behavior, right? So you tend to find that, like I said, you know, girls who grow up in environments that are unpredictable or where dad is gone, um, that they tend to have more sexually precocious behavior later on in adulthood. You see this with um, infl- inflammatory response, um, so with the, with the immune system. So um, researchers have found that growing up in an environment that's harsh and unpredictable, right, so some of these um, more difficult types of environments, things that are associated with, like, poverty, mm. um, you know, high violent crime rate, things that um, cause stress, right, right. psychosocial stress, um, that these types of environments um, tend to, to lead uh, when adults are tested, and in, in these are, you know, people who uh, they've tested this in populations of, for example, like doctors, so people who are currently pretty affluent. Um, and what they find is that a person's childhood socioeconomic status plays a role in how um, reactive their body is to um, pathogenic stress. So they look at things like. Um, They'll stimulate people's white blood cells um, with different types of pro-inflammatory mitogens, so things that will cause um, an an inflammatory response in the body. And what they find is that people who grew up poor, they have an overreactive inflammatory response to stimulation, right? And inflammation is something that we know is associated with a lot of these diseases of aging, right? And so even growing up in in a type of an environment um, you know, like especially like an impoverished type of an environment, this even calibrates something like the immune system and how reactive the body is. And, and the, mm. the rationale for this is that growing up in these types of environments like, might lead to the programming of what researchers have called a defensive phenotype. 
right? And this idea that um, if you're growing up in an environment where it's not necessarily safe and there's a lot of stress, right, that your body has to be able to quickly mobilize resources, if, you know, to, to defend itself against some sort of a challenge, right? And so, you know, the body is preparing itself in this way. And so what happens is if the body, you know, is... Um, insulted in some sort of a way by by way of like bacteria or, or a virus that the body actually overreacts to these things right if and um and that over time this sort of overreactive response of the immune system um that you know works really well in, in an environment that's challenging right mm-hmm. where an individual is likely to be injured um frequently or that sort of thing um it over time can lead to um, diseases that are associated with inflammation. So things like diabetes, certain types of heart disease and cancers, right? So we know that. And um, I've also, I've also read that, uh, it, isn't it uh, people that seem to have a, a weaker immune system are less likely to, um, are, they have kind of like a, um, lower threshold for novelty and and tend to like travel they they tend to stay a lot closer to their in groups and what they know kind of kind of uh, like you, like your immune system's already doing everything it can to keep up with the viruses that it, or diseases or whatever it might be that it already knows about so it doesn't want to like take a lot of chances right and, right yeah and venture out further yeah so there's some there's some really cool research showing that um that people who um who have a, a great or vulnerability to disease or perceive themselves as being um, as being most vulnerable to disease that they tend to be more um, like introverted so they tend to not, not want to go out and like seek out other people which is really interesting right because the idea being that you know if you have a um, if you're vulnerable to diseases that you shouldn't go out and put yourself out there because you're going to be putting yourself out there you know in the face of things like colds and flu and um, uh, you know strep or all those other things that um, that you get um, you know when you're hanging out with other people and they've also other people um have found that um that it can also lead to um uh, more uh restricted sexual you know behavior um uh, we, exchanging bl- yes, bodily fluids yes exactly yeah because yeah. yeah sex is dirty business and um like literally and figuratively i suppose <laughs> And, um, and so, you know, if you, um, if you are most concerned about these types of, um, threats, um, then, then this should lead to these types of, uh, behavioral changes. So, uh, so let me just make sure that I don't have this flip flop. So, so it's people, it's people that, um, are in these, um, high risk environments, are, are the ones that tend to have the overreactive immune system. Okay, yeah. So to get back to the the original point that I was talking about, yeah, yeah. right, with the uh, with the inflammation. Um, so the idea is that if you grow up in an environment that's unpredictable and um, you know, like if the rate of violent crime is high, you're in, you know in a uh, an impoverished type of a situation. Those types of environments are more dangerous than a benign environment, right? Mm-hmm. You're more likely to come in contact with contaminated foods. You're more likely to be injured. And the idea is that growing up in these types of environments might program your immune system to be overreactive, essentially to be very ready to mobilize resources um, to any type of a challenge, right? And although this is good, right, in that type of an environment, if you have an immune system that's overreacting, 
um, this means that your body is exposed to higher levels of inflammation because inflammation is good, and that's what sends a signal, um, you know, to your white blood cells like, hey, get over here and help us repair this stuff. Um, but inflammation in the long term is something that's associated with a number of diseases of aging, right? Mm-hmm. Things like coronary heart- artery disease. It's associated with like risk of heart attack, diabetes, cancers. You know, inflammation sort of as a as a um, trait is kind of bad. Like as a state, right? It, it can be good because it helps you. It helps your body deal with a threat. But if you're exposed to too much inflammation over the lifetime, it can have a, a sort of a can degrade the body at a greater rate. And um, some research in our lab recently has shown that um, it can also uh, lead to um, sort of what we call energy dysregulation. And this is where um, growing up in uh, lower socioeconomic status types of environments, that this um, might undermine the role that current energy need plays in guiding food regulation. And so our idea was that if you grow up in an environment where um, access to resources is unpredictable and therefore, you know, access to regular meals and that sort of thing, access to food is likely to be less secure and less predictable, that growing up in these types of environments might undermine um, the processes of homeostatic energy regulation. Right, so homeostatic energy regulation is just a fancy way, of course, of saying that eating when your need is high. Right, mm-hmm. so when you're hungry, if you eat as a means of um, sort of raising your blood sugar to where it needs to be to operate um, the way that we all need to operate, um, that's like homeostatic feeding. Right, it's eating when you need to, mm-hmm. and then not, and then stopping when you don't. Um, and we had predicted that uh, growing up in conditions of low socioeconomic status um, might lead people to, it might undermine this process, right? It might lead people to eat in the absence of hunger, right? And we were... Because it's unpredictable, you never know when your next meal is coming in. Right, exactly. So it's something that, you know, we know that in modern food-rich environments, like the one that most of us live in now, where there's a Taco Bell, you know, on every corner. In fact, I think if we look out the window there, we can, we can see one. Um, we know that eating in the absence of hunger is one of the biggest predictors of unhealthy weight gain and obesity, um, but you know, if you're, our genes don't really know about Taco Bell, yeah, our, our genes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, our genes don't know about Taco Bell, and so you know, over the course of most of our evolutionary history, if you were growing up in an environment where access to resources was scarce, um, it makes good adaptive sense to sort of recalibrate your energy regulation, mm-hmm. right, in a way where it's not so sensitive to current biological need, right? because if you are growing up in those types of environments, right, where access to food is um, not necessarily certain, um, and you only eat when you're hungry, I mean, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. You're totally screwed because, um, you know, chances are that there's going to come a time where you want to eat um, and you can't and you're, you know, up a, what is it, up a creek in a canoe without a paddle, as they say. Um, and so we predicted that um, that growing up in conditions of low childhood socioeconomic status, that this would predict these different changes in um, energy regulation. And so, uh, so in our studies, what we did is we had people come into the lab, um, and in our first uh, in our first study, we just had people come in and we had them report um, on their childhood socioeconomic status and also. Um, on how long it had been since they'd last eaten anything and how hungry they felt. And then what we did is we gave them some snacks to eat, and, um, and we told them that they could eat as many as they wanted to, 
And what we were interested in was whether there was a relationship between um, between a person's childhood socioeconomic status, their hunger level, or like their actual you know need based on how long it had been since they'd last eaten, um, and then their food intake. And what we found was with our participants who grew up in conditions of low childhood, or let's talk about our high childhood SES people first. So the people who grew up in you know middle class homes, what we found um, was something that would never make a headline anywhere, and that was that they ate more when they were hungry than when they were full. Yeah, right. It's like wow, that's like really great research, Sarah. Um, but then we found with the people who grew up in lower socioeconomic status types of conditions that they ate comparably high amounts of food regardless of whether they were hungry or full. And so then in our following two studies, we followed it up with two studies. Um, where we actually experimentally manipulated energy need. And we did this by having people fast for a minimum of uh, five hours. I think it was five hours. It was five or six hours. Um, uh, We had them fasting, and then we had them come into the lab, and we randomly assigned people to either drink water, which doesn't have any calories, um, or any artificial sweeteners in it, of course, um, or we had them drink a Sprite, which is something that would decrease their energy need. Mm. And then we also we did the same thing that we did before. We measured their childhood socioeconomic status, and we also measured their adult socioeconomic status just to see if this is something that's going on during childhood or if, um, if it's impacted by adult socioeconomic status in the same types of ways. And then we gave them food to eat. And what we found in those two studies that we, um, where we manipulated um, energy need was that participants, um, again, who grew up in like middle-class homes, like the wealthier kids, um, that um, they ate significantly, a significantly greater number of calories um, after, uh, after they drank the water compared to the Sprite, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, they downregulated their food intake based on their um, biological need, right? That's I, I do this quite, if I ever have a soda, like before I have lunch or dinner or uh, something right. like that, it, it often kind of ruins my appetite. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and so we can make predictions about your childhood yeah. environment. Yeah, I, well, I have to thank my parents <laughs> yeah. for providing a stable environment yes. for me. For, yeah. and now I can eat whatever I want to anytime I, I feel yeah. like it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And yeah, and so what we found in those studies was for the the middle class kids or the the I guess they're, they're adults now, right, eighteen to twenty five year olds. Um, but the that that for those who grew up in these you know stable, predictable types of environments, that their blood glucose because we actually measured blood glucose in our third study is that that was what was guiding their food intake is that as blood glucose you know decrease like lower blood glucose predicted greater eating and higher blood glucose predicted lesser eating um, and with our uh, people who grew up in conditions of low childhood socioeconomic status, there was absolutely no relationship between blood glucose and food intake, mm-hmm. and that they ate comparably high amounts of food regardless of um, what their actual biological need was. Um, and you know th- these results like this, and then from some of the other research um, that you know I was telling you about um, that that others have done, it all suggests that. A person's early life environment really plays an important role in shaping a lot of the regulatory mechanisms that we have, right? So we're guiding our way or guiding our behavior in a way that would be, you know, functionally adaptive in an environment that's sort of consistent with the one we grew up in, right? And right. so, so the idea is that that you know, if, if you, that your early life environment likely plays, or it probably serves as like a blueprint of what the types of environments that you can expect to encounter in adulthood. Right, and that you're essentially developing in a way that would maximally allow you to compete for resources in that in that expected adult environment. 
Right. So to to really overly simplify things, if if this were like a computer program or a number of computer programs that our our brain was operating on, it would be like our genes set up this kind of if then sort of if if X happens in the environment, then uh, you know switch to this strategy or right. whatever it might be. It's interesting how far back because I, I I'm sure it's already a, you know mind-blowing to a lot of people that a lot of this stuff can go back to um, early childhood. But even even further back than that, like I remember learning um, a little bit about the, the, um, the Dutch hunger winter, yeah. uh, where this is, uh, I, I haven't talked about this on the program before, but, um, and uh, I, I, I may be butcher, butchering this um, listener, so don't put this on, on Sarah if I have <laughs> this all, or this is all me. Um, Sarah's so, waving, Sarah's so, waving her arms so, saying, not me, so, not yeah. me. So, so, so the I- idea was um, that in, I think it was 1944, the, uh, the, the Germans had this uh, a blockade set up in the, uh, that, that limited um, Dutch, people, uh, Dutch people's resources. And so they had this uh, horrifying winter where there's just rampant starvation and everything. And, and what they find is that women in the third trimester uh, that, that, that had kids that, that some 40, 50 years later or whatever it might be, those children that were, in, that were third trimester fetuses in that environment during that starvation period later on um, in their adult life had, had incredibly uh, such higher rates of obesity and, and diabetes than, than the general population. How would I do? You did pretty good. You did pretty good. No, I don't remember what the trimester in pregnancy was. I just so, yeah. but but this maps on to the same mental map I have of you know like sort of like the concept of that study that maps onto what you said. So, right. so we'll just we'll just roll with it, like <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. not with you know sort of like the caveat uh, lectern like or, uh, that you know we don't know what trimester. Well, right. I don't know for sure. Anyway, it, it's but, fine. My I, it, not once has any of my listeners been like you had the year wrong on that. <laughs> It was forty three. They they don't they they just right. want the concepts. So, right, right. Okay, so, good. Like, yeah. And let's not make this a let's not make this a pivotal yeah, moment in this radio. Yeah, this is this isn't a peer podcast. reviewed yeah, uh, podcast. podcast. <laughs> so, um, and uh, uh, but the idea being is that uh, yeah. if you're if you're a fetus, you're you're getting these cues like, hey, there's. It seems like there's not a lot of resources out there in the environment, so we better have this very thrifty metabolism that we better eat anything we can and store away. To, and I'm sure our listeners already know this, but just as a right. reminder, the, the reason why we have this body fat stuff was, was this evolved kind of storage mechanism to store energy. And so, uh, so if, if in, in whatever trimester it was, I believe, right. I believe it yeah. was the third, um, they, they go, we better hold on to everything we can right. get our hands on. Right. And, and what's, uh, what's especially sad about that is then these people with diabetes then end up passing it on because there's some sort of uh, a food regulation thing that I, I don't have a, I don't know the specifics about but but if you're diabetic and and you're a mother uh, some of the resources get cut off from your child so then that child ends up having sometimes the same and it right. uh, and it can take generations to start to balance that back out yeah the 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 thrifty phenotype hypothesis which is one of those hypotheses that's been um, that's been sort of supported right by that Dutch hunger study 
um, is ju- yeah, just this idea that um, any sort of um, resource scarcity in utero um, is associated with things like a greater risk of yeah insulin resistance, a greater risk of um, having a, a really low metabolism because they find that these individuals have a lower rate of metabolism, and also that they tend to be less active as adults. And, you know, and just the idea of um, somebody's sort of baseline activity level being something that can be impacted by the uterine environment is, like, really super interesting, right? And, of course, yeah. it, um, it it doesn't really it's, – it's scary at the same time, right, yeah. to think that, um, like, gosh, you know, all these, like, early life – um, environmental processes might play a really key role in regulating things that are so important, like eating or sexual behavior or, you know, how you, you know, your degree of impulsiveness or riskiness, like a lot of these things might be um, impacted long before we actually even emerge into the world is, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting and provocative, but yeah, it's also sort of scary. And in fact, you know, and oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I, I was just going to say, and you're welcome to take a pass on yeah. this question because it might be a little taboo or provocative or yeah. whatever. But you often hear about high rates of, of um, diabetes in the African-American population. It's usually attributed, a lot of times attributed to genes. And, and right. uh, do, you, do you think that it often uh, would right. have more of a, might be more of a socioeconomic uh, right. thing happening? I mean, this is something right. that yeah, may, maybe yeah, hasn't no, been studied. And, yeah, well, no, I, th- I think that the answer is yes, yeah. right? I think it's both things, right? right? So I think that there might be um, there might be a greater proportion of, like, thrifty genes in, in African-American populations um, here. Just, you know, if you think about um, what what a lot of these populations have been through historically, um, having thrifty genes, you could imagine that that could be something that could be um, selected for, you know, within that uh, group. But certainly the social, the early life social environment um, probably also plays a really important role in that. And I would imagine that if you did a um, sort of childhood socioeconomic status by um, race, ethnicity type of um, analysis where you looked at both of those variables, I would be willing to bet that the um, the race ethnicity piece would be totally um, sort of most of the variance there would be accounted for by the differences in early childhood socioeconomic status. Mm. Like I'm not really sure if anybody has, and, and somebody probably has, I'm just not aware of the research, um, looked at sort of like race-based differences in risk of obesity and, and um, things like uh, insulin resistance resistance and diabetes sort of stratified by um, income and socioeconomic status. Yeah, you would think an African-American in in a a stable or wealthy household or whatever would be much less susceptible to this kind of stuff than those in conditions. Yeah, exactly. And particularly if they grew up in those types of environments also, right? Right. Because um, since so much of this research suggests that a lot of this might go on, you know, prenatally or in the early life environment. And even with the stuff that we did with the food intake, you know, we asked people about their childhood socioeconomic status um, from, you know, as early as they can remember until age 12. So we don't know when the hell that went on. Like we, it could have been something that was going on. It could be like uh, fetal programming by mm-hmm. mom, not having resources. Um, it could be, you know, uh, early life, you know, it could be zero to three. It could be three to six. Like we, we really don't know um, exactly uh, what happened and, and when it happened. But, um, but yeah, so early life sort of broadly speaking appears to be play an important role in a lot of important stuff. 
You probably don't remember, but I cut you off asking that question. It seemed like oh. you were going to go on with something um, oh, okay. be, before we got into that. That's okay. okay. Um, <laughs> we'll just keep on moving forward. I, I was curious, just as you were talking about impulsive behavior and everything, and, and it just it probably occurred to me just because we were talking before recording, we were talking about um, how... Uh, how uh, Doug Kenrick and um, I did an, a past episode with him. That uh, was one of my favorites. But we, I believe, we talked a bit about the um, the marshmallow test and this yeah. this uh, uh, so refresher for for the listeners. You set kids down with a marshmallow in front of them, for example. They do the study a lot of different ways, but that's just quick overview. Uh, marshmallow in front of them, and then uh, the researcher says, I'm going to leave the room. If you don't eat this marshmallow, when I come back, you get two marshmallows or three marshmallows or whatever. They test a variety. Of. And then and it turns out that, that people with, uh, or, or the, the kids that end up being able to delay the gratification and and uh, wait for that second or third marshmallow or whatever often it seemed to be a predictor of of um, of future success and higher IQ or college education or whatever it might be and and um, and uh, Doug had made the interesting point that that um, this isn't this isn't necessarily um, like. An inherent thing. This this might be more of a life history thing, where if you look back, it lo- it looked as if these kids were um, the ones that were uh, eating the the marshmallow were the ones that were in lower socioeconomic statuses, and so and and so the they had this environmental cue of like the. This is a very unpredictable world that I'm living in. I can't trust this researcher that they're going to right. bring back. And so, so evolutionarily, or according to like this life history theory, it would right. make sense to eat that marshmallow because you, your right. environment has taught you that you don't know for a hundred percent. Right, um, right. I, I was curious if if you think you could go back to some of the people that have done the marshmallow test and then figure out if some of these people ended up having like uh, earlier rates of puberty as well or, or right. more children or right anything. right yeah you could almost predict that they would because all of those um, all of those uh, types of environmental situations um, are oftentimes covariant they, they covary you know with mm-hmm. one another they're related to each other and um, yeah I, I always thought that the, the the marshmallow task is like this really great snapshot of sort of like the, the differences in a person's um, early environment and how that influences decision making in these like very broad ways right that if you don't trust the world that you live in right if the world that you live in isn't trustworthy right because a lot for a lot of these kids it's not because they don't know what to expect right and trust is really sort of about like you know getting what you're expecting and yeah Yeah, it's kind of it's well it's kind of like um an investment or 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 like kind of like gambling on a stock market or something like that but we're just kind of measuring how how predictable this this market is that, that right. you're living in. Right. Yeah. And it reminds me of a, I just, I read a paper not that long ago um, by a colleague of mine where they looked at the uh, low birth weight and then social trust. And essentially what you get is people who were born with low birth weight that as adults, that they have um, lower levels of social trust. Right. So in other words, again, you know, here is this early cue um, of resource 
you know, uh, scarcity because most children who are born low birth weight, it's because they either didn't get a long enough gestation period, which is basically they had their investment, their prenatal investment cut off early, you know, and um, that that might send a signal or that they just weren't getting as many resources as those with a higher birth weight and that this leads them to feel less like they can sort of trust the environment, right? So like less social trust in others, which Mm. again is like this, I think just really um, is provocative research, right? Again, suggesting that sort of like your your history of, of getting the rewards that you see coming, right? Or that somebody promises you in the case of the marshmallow task, right? Like whether or not you're going to, um, you know, wait for those or, you know, try, try something else or go out on your own or eat the marshmallow right away that, that these types of things get calibrated in your early environment. So, so interesting. Yeah. That's and uh, I, I just, it makes me think of all of the, I mean, there's just an insane amount of factors with every little thing it, I, with, um, the, the early, um, birth, uh, birth rate or uh, yeah. pre- uh, premature babies mm-hmm. what's the for some reason i want to say incubator but uh, what, what, what's the what's the thing that they they put kids in again that are uh, like the, the yeah, little maybe maybe that is an incubator is it like i feel like that's what it's called <laughs> okay. i don't know and i've had two kids <laughs> yeah. and like and yeah and and i think that that might be right yeah um they uh, I, i've read some stuff about how 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 because putting kids in that and and sometimes um uh, just just the idea of not being touched as much in that right, environment yeah. and and not having that bonding could right. also cue you in that this environment is unstable. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that would be another reliable cue, right? Because you know, sort of uh, historically, if a child wasn't being touched and handled and coddled and snuggled, mm-hmm. right, that that would be a cue that this is you know this is not a safe environment. Like this is an environment where you. Um, can't really trust others to give you the resources that you need, and um, and that that sort of might play an important role in you know shifting you down a certain um, type of a developmental trajectory. And uh, so, so I saw. Um, I think maybe I just read the abstract for one of your papers, but but it was it's along the lines of what we're talking about um, about how. Um, females in these unstable environments as as children often have uh, riskier um, sexual behavior mm-hmm. later on mm-hmm. is that uh, i don 't know if we kind of already covered it or well so so we 've got um, so we 've got some experimental work looking at uh, father absence and when you say yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I say experimental work looking at father absence um, i don 't mean I randomly assign people to like be living with or without dad, <laughs> um, which would like we tried to do that, and the IRB, <laughs> the IRB shut us down <laughs> bastards like trying to trying to like prevent like the progress of science. Sons of bitches. And so we, we actually, we just had people think about a time that their dad wasn't there for them. And what we found is we found that there is this like uh, really, you know, even just having people think about that led women to report having um, sort of more uh, precocious sexual attitudes. Like they were more, um, like they were less uh, wedded to the idea of commitment before sex. And they were more like sex was more on the tip of their brain. Cause we did these um, types of tasks where you can actually look at how easily something comes into somebody's mind. And you do that by giving people like, for example, word stems 
So if I showed you the word, like, like if I told you, you need to fill in the blank to make a word and I showed you S blank X, right? You could fill that in as the number six, right? Or mm-hmm. maybe if you like, um, like the red socks or the, you know, it could be socks, um, or sex, right? Yeah. Um, so you can fill that, that in, um, in different ways. And so we gave, um, women a list of word stems and some, and they were all things that could be filled in in a way that was either sort of risque or in a neutral. way that was, yeah, it was neutral. Yeah. And what we found is like, even just, yeah, thinking about a time that dad wasn't there for you makes women think like it makes them more sort of sexually, um, motivated and it's, it's reflected in their changes in their sexual attitudes. And then also, um, the types of things that are sort of on the tip of their brain, um, um, when we ask them to, so that's um, that's some of the stuff that we've done looking at um, at father absence. Then we're also looking at that in terms of uh, sexual um, sort of uh, uh, receptivity to men, and um, and looking at whether um, even just reminders of paternal disengagement might lead women to um, be more receptive to. Um, overtures uh, by men. And so we're looking at those things right now. Um, but we've also looked at the role that um, that the environmental uh, pathogen load plays in risky sexual behavior. Um, and earlier on, you and I were talking about some of the research that's been done looking at how um, pathogens in the environment can lead people to be more conservative. Could I quick interrupt you just yes. to explain one, one thing about this? Um, how do you test someone's immune system? Well, okay, so uh, that's a great question. Um, and um, so most of the research that's been done, let me just say this. Um, so it depends on what we're talking about. So when I talked about the inflammatory responses, mm-hmm. that type of research is actually done using peripheral blood mononuclear cells. So they're called PBMCs. And they actually stimulate uh, them. All my yeah. listeners are already quite Yeah, familiar. they're falling asleep. Everybody is falling asleep. <laughs> no, um, no. So basically, you take white blood cells and you, you challenge them and you see how they respond. That's how that research has been done. Because you can actually look and see how people's white blood cells respond when they're um, stimulated mm-hmm. by something that mimics a disease. Um, and so that research has been done that way. Most of the research in um, sort of evolutionary social psych has been done just with people reporting on like their vulnerability to diseases. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, a lot of this research finds that people who are fearful of disease, so like kind of hypochondriacs, <laughs> yeah. Um, that, for example, hypochondriacs are the ones who um, tend to uh, report having more restricted sexual behavior, right? So if you're somebody who's afraid of disease, yeah, you're not going to want to have as many sexual partners. That makes good, I mean, that sort of makes, most people would say that makes intuitive sense, Mm -hmm. right? If you're a hypochondriac and you're afraid of diseases, that um, you're probably not going to want to do a whole lot of, you know, short-term sex because sex is, of course, germy. That's like germy behavior, um, but so what, what our research did is, um, I actually was, uh, I, I saw a documentary on fish and, I um, mean, it was this kind of fish that usually will asexually reproduce, right? So these are the kinds of fish that will clone themselves most of the time when they're reproducing. Um, but sometimes if they're in a pool, if they live in a pool that's really dense with pathogens, right? So there's a lot of diseases in that pool, um, what these fish will do is they'll start reproducing sexually. Mm. And they do this to shuffle up their genomes 
Mm -hmm. right? Because this, of course, keeps pathogens at bay because they don't have you figured out anymore. You're basically a novel target. Yeah, we've talked a lot about this. Uh, These pathogens evolve very quickly and and kind of catch up with this sort of lock and key sort of immune system. Exactly, exactly. And so each generation, these these fish can switch up their locks. Yeah, so they'll switch up their locks when the disease, when the risk of disease in the environment is high, Mm. right? Because in this this case with these fish, the um, the benefits of this... um, in those types of environments are so great that it outweighs the cost of losing 50% of your genome by not cloning yourself, mm. right? And so I saw this and I was thinking about people because that's what I do um, when I watch documentaries as I daydream about research. And um, I was interested in whether uh, women in particular, if we primed them, if we told them that they were living in an environment where the pathogen rate is increasing and that the rate of um, death from disease is expected to increase um, dramatically in coming years, I was interested in whether women then might also exhibit shifts in their mating psychology that would help, um, like, sort of diversify their um, genetic lineage. So I was interested in whether women might be sort of similar to fish by responding to cues of an increased disease risk by doing things to diversify um, their offspring. So in particular, would women um, who have a history of reporting vulnerability to diseases respond to cues that the pathogen load is escalating in their environment um, by having a greater desire for novel partners. And, um, and so we did a series of uh, five experiments where we experimentally primed women and, and we put men in one of the studies I mean, we didn't find any um, action in men. And I think this just because for men, like the benefits of variety We're are just always trying so to high. Spread <laughs> yeah, to Every, say, everywhere always. we can. It's like for men, yeah, it's like the benefits of, of sexual variety seeking are, are always high. Like, and, and so I didn't expect there to be as much sensitivity to environmental cues about the um, uh, disease or pathogen load. And I'm sorry, did you mention how you did this priming? Was this just like, a, are you just triggering disgust by showing them like gross pictures? No, because so we didn't want to prime disgust and actually I'm glad that you brought that up because we, um, we created a slideshow, right? And we told them that the slideshow was taken out of Newsweek, that it was based on pictures from an article in Newsweek magazine and it had captions. And the name of the slideshow was something to the effect of, um, uh, like a sick, you know, Oh, disease in the 20th, 21st century, like a sick future ahead. It was something to that effect. And so it was telling a story about how the rate of disease is expected to escalate um, like exponentially in coming years. Um, And uh, due to things like uh, the rise of antibacterial resistant or antibiotic resistant bacteria, um, West Nile virus, some of these novel strains of flu that are coming over from people traveling more. So we just, and and cancers, and so we, we told them a story about this. And all of the pictures in the um, in the slideshow were chosen um, specifically because we did not want to elicit disgust because mm. disgust you know is sort of a it's a it's like a hot cognition right it's something that like leads to an immediate response um, and when there's an immediate pathogen cue in the environment like the the reaction to that is one of prophylaxis right it's like keeping yourself away from it and like the yuck. Mm. Um, and you know, if somebody vomits, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't predict that that would lead people to want to have sex (laughs) with, uh, with multiple partners, but rather if you tell them like, Hey, you know, the rates of these diseases are on the rise and they're expected to just do nothing but continue to escalate in coming years. Um, Hey, you know, tell me about, uh, your, um, you know, your desire for novel sexual partners. 
we predicted that women who reported uh, being most vulnerable to disease, so we used this uh, scale that measures people's history of vulnerability to illnesses. So it measures, like, some of the items on the scale are things like, um, if there is a sickness going around, I'll get it. Or... um, uh, my immune system doesn't seem to protect me against the types of illnesses that other people's immune systems protect them against, right? And what we found um, across these five studies is that women who scored high on that scale, right, so who are higher than average on um, the perceived vulnerability to disease scale, that they responded to these cues indicating an escalating risk of um, serious disease in the future by desiring a greater number of novel partners. Mm. And so they exhibited this shift that would help promote like like that type of a genetic bet hedging approach, right? Like, uh, I don't have the genes that are going to, you know, survive, um, you know, chances <laughs> are, right? And so I'm going to put my, I'm going to have my eggs in different baskets as a means of like hoping that somebody will have combination yeah. well I'm, I'm just thinking about all my male listeners now Wait, going to bars and, yeah, and talking yeah. about the west nile say, virus say baby <laughs> say baby uh, do you hear that west nile virus is going around and to the women and the you know the women listeners I'll, I'll say this to you like so we only found this in women with a high vulnerability to disease so what you need to say back when the guy says that is say, oh, I don't ever get sick. <laughs> and then you can shut him down right away. Right? Because, yeah, the, the women who, like, have a history of not getting sick, who have a history of being able to fight off against illnesses, right, who have been mostly healthy their lives, um, they didn't respond to these cues in this way. It was just really these women whose, um, whose own personal health history would indicate that they might not have what it takes, you know, to survive in these types of environments sort of long term and that they might, you know, engage in this type of risky sexual behavior, which, you know, in the short term, of course, it increases the risk of horizontal disease transmission, right? Because if you're having sex with multiple partners, your chances of getting a, you know, an STI or something like that are much higher than they are if you stick to a single partner. But, you know, and that seems sort of irrational, right? But sort of like deeply rational, right? Because, of course, by doing this, you know, you can increase the likelihood that at least one of those offspring is going to have the genes necessary to promote the long-term success of your offspring lineage. Mm-hmm. Right? Because our body, you know, even though, of course, we're very motivated to keep it alive and healthy and well, I mean, it's disposable, right. you know, and really it's about getting those genes into the next generation, right? And sometimes the way to do that is something that will increase your risk currently, but in the long term um, can actually, you know, facilitate long-term uh, lineage success. And we're actually following up on this now um, with some stuff. We're actually looking at immune system measures. So you asked about how people do this. And um, in most of the social psych literature, and with few exceptions, um, we just look at people's self-reported health and that sort of thing. And um, more recently, uh, we have been wanting to look at, and we've started uh, collecting data, um, some in this room, in fact, um, uh, looking at uh, a person's immunocompetence and their their uh, and their sexual behavior. And we're not recording their sexual behavior in the room, but we have people report on um, factors that are associated with um, their life history strategies. So, for example, their timing of puberty. Um, we look at their childhood socioeconomic status. We're looking at um, the age of their first sexual experience, the number of partners they've had, their desire for multiple partners, um, their desire for novel partners, their desire for partners with cues associated with high genetic quality, and also things like impulsivity. 
Um, and then we have them go into our wet lab, which is about two rooms behind where we're sitting right now. And we have them give us, um, we have them give us about five tablespoons of blood. And then we take that into the lab and we're looking at markers of immunocompetence and we're doing it in several different ways. And one way that we're doing it is looking at the reactivity of their NK cells. NK cells are natural killer cells. And they're a, they're a small population of our white blood cells that um, can kill um, a cell without any sort of prior sensitization. Right? So a lot of parts of our immune system have to learn, like, oh, that's a bacteria. I know that bacteria. I'll kill that bacteria. Um, with NK cells, um, they're able to kill something without ever having seen it before. If it just looks funny and doesn't seem to be acting the way that cells are supposed to act, natural killer cells will go over and demand that the cell kills itself. And so they play a really important role in things like cancer. Right, because if, um, when you have a you know a neoplasm which develops into a tumor, what it's it's cells misbehaving, right? It's your body's own cells sort of like sending out signals like, hey, let's make lots of copies of ourselves and mm-hmm. never die. Um, and NK cells, if they notice that, will go and destroy the tumor before it even emerges. Um, and so, what we're one way that we're looking at immunocompetence is we're taking our participants' white blood cells and we're putting them with a tumor line, a human tumor line. Um, in culture, and then um, these tumor cells, we have them um, laced, or we, we call it being labeled with radioactive chromium. And what, so what happens is when the participants' white blood cells kill the tumor cells, it releases chromium. And then you measure that with a gamma counter, which is something that counts the amount of radioactivity mm-hmm. um, in the culture, and we can see how well their blood cells deal with cancer cells. And so um, we're looking, that's one of our measures. We're also looking at how um, sort of coordinated um, uh, type of an immune response we get in response to a B cell mitogen and a T cell mitogen. So B cells and T cells um, play an important role in our what's known as our adaptive immune system. This is the part that has to learn things. right? And we can look at how sort of coordinated of a response um, people's um, white blood cells um, have in response to um, these different types of mitogens. Um, And so we're looking at that and its role in impacting these types of behaviors, the NK cell reactivity and these types of behaviors, and also how well um, their their white blood cells do with with E. coli. So we actually have an E. coli uh, measure where we can look and see how well um, their uh, their cells are able to manage that. And so we're using these to sort of build a composite of somebody's immunocompetence. And obviously the immune system has 8 million pieces and we're just looking at a few little snapshots of it. Um, but the idea being that people who show a really nice, res- like coordinated response to these different types of threats that have posed such an important part, you know, I mean, they, they pose such an important threat to human survival over time, right? That we um, are predicting that low immunocompetence, right, especially in some of these things that play such an important role in terms of promoting our survival, um, that these should be associated with more impulsivity, a la the marshmallow task Mm -hmm. type of thing, right, where if you are more vulnerable to death from illness, then your shadow of the future is less certain, right? And so we should expect... Get out there and breathe. Get out there and do it. Do your thing, you know, take that marshmallow, um, and so we expect that. We expect earlier age of um, first reproductive event. We expect um, there to be, you know, a greater number of uh, partners, a greater desire for partners who have qualities associated with good genes. So things like physical attractiveness and testosterone markers in the case of men. Oh, that's interesting. Over, over like a, 
a stable career or something like that. Right, right. So in other words, um, in, in evolutionary lingo, we would say that they would, they should. We expect that they'll prioritize um, indirect benefits. So these benefits that go to your offspring mm-hmm. instead of direct benefits, which are things that like yeah, like resources or a things nice that car. are an investment, yeah. yeah, in yourself. And so we expect mm-hmm. that there should be um, sort of a shift favoring those things with lesser immunocompetence. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and also more risky sexual behavior, which again is so. You know, if you just look at that from like rationality 101, it doesn't make any sense that if you're vulnerable to diseases that you're going to be, you know, more um, sexually risky or sexually precocious. Um, But again, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, our soma is disposable. Like, and as long as we're able to, you know, get our genes in the next generation and provide some level of um, parental care so our children survive, then, um, then it makes good adaptive sense to do this thing, even if it means that you yourself might have to take some penicillin <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. every now and again after yeah, a yeah, shady yeah. night at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, that's this is uh, what I like about this podcast is it kind of uh, uh, eliminates this notion of you hear so many people, especially on like the news or politicians or whatever talking about common sense. I'm just talking about common sense. It's like, no, there's no such thing. Your idea of common sense is so silly and ridiculous. Like you just haven't looked into it. No one thinks about all these varieties of, of causes that have uh, the the evolutionary causes and, you know, microbiological causes that are affect everything that we do. Um, I have a as a as a comedian, not a, not a scientist. I I uh, have the luxury of getting to make uh, wild speculations. Um, <laughs> ba- I, I, ba- I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so here here's here's some exceptionally anecdotal evidence for okay. you. But but I was just curious why, why is it they uh, do you think that it, it seems like everyone that I know who is on like these very strict you know i live in la and there's people on like these gluten diets that are allergic to everything and blah 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 and it, and these seem like the sickliest people that i've ever right. met in my right. life it's right. like you you do so much more than i do to avoid every disease and whatever else and you're right. sick 20 times a year and i'm sick maybe once a year like right. Right. what do you think that's do you think that's maybe just they had a weaker immune system to start off with and that's why they become hypochondriacs yeah or do you think- yeah so yeah and that could be that way or it could be the bubble that they're putting themselves in that's making right, them, right. yeah no I think that it could be um, I think that uh, that it could be the, the very thing that you said and that is that people who have um, who have more vulnerability um, uh, in their in their uh, immune systems that they might be the ones who are doing this very thing to begin with right mm-hmm. that idea that being that if you're vulnerable that you might try to um, yeah, put yourself in that weird bubble. And, um, and with a lot of these things, of course, they're crazy and don't work. Um, and, and so, yeah, you're not really, they're not improving. Instead, they're just like staying, um, staying sort of sickly and and weird. But, you know, I think a lot of, you know, I think about a lot of those weird diets and stuff, and it's almost like superstition. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, like, it's like, we want to, we, we hear a lot about, you know, this disease and that disease. And then in the news reports on these things all the time, right? Like very exciting stuff. Oh, I know anything they can do to scare you and get your attention. Yeah. Or like cancer is, you know, on the rise or whatever. And it's like, and, and, and they make people feel so helpless to, 
you know, control some of these things um, because they're not something where they, they, the news media in particular, you know, they'll report on these things and they never report any sort of a clear route to avoid it. Right. Right. And so I think that it leaves a lot of people feeling really scared and vulnerable. And it's almost like, yeah, lack of control is one of the biggest causes of stress in our lives. Yeah. And so so I think that that really kind of effect. Yeah. I think that a lot of that is is reflecting people just trying to. I'm doing something about this. Yes, exactly. I'm letting your body know that. Yeah. Doing something. Yeah. I'm doing something about this. Mm. And um, even if it doesn't really actually work in terms of doing anything like biologically to improve your um, your health outcomes, just sort of feeling in control mm-hmm. of it. Um, and, that makes you know, sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably making them feel better, which, you know, there there is something to the idea that sort of having agency and feeling like you have control mm-hmm. over things is associated with better outcomes. So in some way, you know, this could be sort of like the indirect placebo effect if it does have a positive outcome is that, you know, doing crazy, you know, voodoo diets, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like only eating wheat grass on Wednesdays and like whatever it is, yeah. um, that this might lead to sort of um, increased feelings of control over your health um, or like increased like uh, there, there's like locus of like health locus of control. There's a measure that measures that sort of thing. And then that this leads to better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right. But that but that anything that would increase your health locus of control then should also lead you know, right. to those outcomes. So everyone, get out there and buy the secret today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> placebos won't work unless yeah. you really believe them. Yes, so. well, yes, except for um, except for a South Beach diet, our uh, our our sponsors of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> buy lots of cereal bars. <laughs> Um, so before we wrap up, I, I have a, a, another, uh, oh, yeah. do you have an extra few minutes? Yeah, probably? I do. Okay. So I, I just had one or two brief little sure. questions for you. Uh, so before we wrap up, I have each one of my guests plug a nonprofit of their choice each week. Okay. Uh, and is this a place where this, you're doing that? This would be the place right now. <laughs> I, I okay. still haven't figured out how to do this in the smoothest yeah. possible so, fashion, so, but my intent is 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 right. So, so, so forgive so you, me, yeah, I was gonna say, So you think you're bad at intros, but it turns out that you're bad at closing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm bad at closing <laughs> okay, as well. Okay. I, 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 I usually just don't mention that part. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Like, intros and outros are, are my my two weak points yeah, of, I, of I, this podcast. I, I liked the surprise. I like the <laughs> surprise it kind of did something for me um so we are crushing that middle part though <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my nonprofit of choice actually um and it's funny because it actually sort of weaves into the stuff i was talking about is uh, is a march of dimes both of my children were early um, oh, so wow. yeah so my daughter uh, my water broke with her actually at 30 weeks and i was able to continue to gestate her until 34 weeks but she was a 34 weeker and then my son was born at 36 weeks. So he wasn't really considered premature. He was just like early. Mm-hmm. What do they call him? Like full term early or something to that effect. Anyway, um, for with both of them, um, their outcomes, uh, you know, and they're perfectly healthy, very, um, you know, active kids now, nine and uh, six. And, um, and if it weren't for research for organizations like the March of Dimes, like their outcomes wouldn't have been as good as they are. So that's my, awesome. that's I love my it. plug. All right, yeah. terrific. And everyone go, can go to the herewearepodcast.com website and click on the link to find out more there as well. And uh, so, so I am curious, just because you do so much work with um, with uh, female variants and and um, 
you know, the, the immune system stuff, and then, you know, that absence of a father. Which, by, by the way, so, so this is, uh, you know, the old cliche we hear about, uh, about strippers having daddy, daddy issues. issues. To, yeah, so, yeah. So, so science has proved this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yes. Yeah. So I, um, I was talking to somebody on an airplane not long after the uh, paper came out. And, um, and I was talking to them. They were like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a psychologist. And then they were trying to tell me about their marriage problems. And I'm like, I'm not that kind of psychologist. I do research. <laughs> and then I was following up on that by talking a little bit about what we were doing. And I will never forget, this woman just looked at me and she said, so daddy issues. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess daddy issues. Um, yeah, so daddy issues. Yeah, yeah. Daddy issues. Um, so I'm curious uh, what, what kinds <laughs> of... Um, Life history variables um, affect men's sexual behavior. Oh, that's interesting. So we know that growing up in a you know in an environment where dad isn't around, or in an environment where there's a high rate of violent crime and some of these other things, that the men also tend to be more promiscuous and they also tend to be more aggressive. Um, and got to uh, compete more. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's more competition. And one of the reasons that there's more competition is because there's more mating opportunities and it's because the women are oftentimes sort of acquiescing to what the men want, right. In this type of a, um, scenario and they're engaging in more of this, uh, short term mating. But, um, so, so the things that impact women's sexual outcomes generally also affect men's sexual outcomes, um, because the two things are kind of necessarily related to one another. Um, but the effects are generally more pronounced in women just because for men, there is already so much variability right. with some men being incredibly successful and some men being incredibly unsuccessful, um, and sort of the benefits of being one of those successful men is always so great just because of that really low minimum level of parental investment that you get a little bit less context um, specificity. Like women, it's like their sexual behavior is very nuanced, right? Like with this cue in the environment, then you should be a little bit this way. And if you're, you know, this little nuance in the environment, you should be a little bit that way. And like for men, it's like the best of evolutionary strategy is basically... Fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> right? right. And, um, and so there, you, you get a little bit less nuance in that sort of thing, right. just again, because the benefits of, of sex are just so, I mean, you know, opportunistic sex are so high for men sort of across, you know, reasons or, or conditions. But do you think there's like an indirect with, with just making men more competitive in general? Like, uh, you know, why, why, you know, young, young males are, are such, uh, assholes when they're teenagers or whatever, you right, know, and, and, right. uh, and it's very important to be good at sports or, you know, whatever they, they care so much about this or, or fighting in bars or whatever earlier on. And then, right. and then, you know, you get married and they call it settling down. Right. You, yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah. cause, cause you kind right. of, it's not that you like necessarily like learned anything. It's, <laughs> it's that you got what you were kind right. of competing for and now right. you don't have to do, go out and do all this crazy attention getting right. sort of behavior. Behavior. Right. Yeah. And that's the that's the thing is like for for, um, you know, because essentially a fast life history strategy, when you 
um, sort of boil it down to its essence. It's it's about a, a strategy that prioritizes mating effort, mm-hmm. right? And for men, a lot of times mating effort is competitiveness because women like guys who are high in status, and so men have to compete very fiercely to get access to that status because getting them that status gets them women, right? right? And then, of course, then you do see that thing that happens, which is when a guy, yeah, settles down, right? And, um, and essentially what's happening is, yeah, he's sort of... Um, his mating opportunities have been realized and now we can just kind of relax a little bit and not have to worry about competing so fiercely. And in fact, you know, they see um, when you look at testosterone um, and sort of how it changes, um, what you see is that, you know, you get the age curve that you would expect, which is that as men age, their testosterone levels decrease. Um, but part of that is driven by the fact that men's testosterone decreases when they get married and then it takes another hit when they have kids. And so men actually experience sort of a functional downshift in their uh, testosterone production that would help to shift their effort away from mating-related behaviors, you know, things like getting into bar fights and trying to attract sexual partners, and uh, toward things like caring for their uh, partner and caring for their offspring. Hmm. That's interesting. And and it might necessarily all be age-related, too. I remember when I got out of, like, a very long-term relationship and I was I was behaving like the most responsibly I had in my life and taking real good care of myself and everything right. else and, yeah. and then became single for the first time and however long right. all of a sudden my right. my, uh, my behavior became quite a bit more reckless and was partying right. more and, right. and everything else even though I was older. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and, and so a lot of the, the sort of like age effect, you know, that age curve of testosterone, a lot of that like is, is influenced by the fact that older men tend to be married with kids. Right, right, right. right. And as soon as, yeah, exactly, as soon as you, like, um, Or having a yourself, midlife crisis or whatever else, it, it yeah, creeps you back up again. Yeah, and I think a, mid, a midlife crisis is probably something that occurs due to a mismatch between your opportunities and your circumstances, right? right. So, like, a midlife crisis, I think, might be one of those things where it's like um, you are finding yourself in a situation where you have more opportunities than men are peaking around this yes. age of 40 where now they, yes. you got married when you were 23 and still or fresh out of college and poor yeah. or whatever and now now you're doing well and you're CEO of this company right <laughs> yeah and you've got all these other opportunities around you and um and I'm sure that that makes it more challenging to not buy a convertible right, right. <laughs> well this is a fantastic discussion my I audience is good. absolutely going to love this this okay, is yay. right Thanks. up our alley so thank you so much Sarah, thank you. for joining me and everyone can uh, go to the here we are podcast.com uh, website and and you can click on the link to find out more about Sarah Hill's research and thank you guys all for uh, for being attentive and curious and tuning in each week and we'll talk with you next week thank you thank you guys for listening don't forget to rate review subscribe tell all your friends and next week on the program i'm very excited a guest i've been wanting to get for a very long time you've probably if you've been listening to every episode from the beginning uh, <laughs> which you don't have to but i certainly appreciate it if you did it definitely helps uh things make sense because we learn more over time but anyway if, if you have done that you've certainly heard me talk about david buss who is kind of one of the um uh, really one of the one of the founders of modern evolutionary psychology he wrote the first textbook on evolutionary psychology i uh, wrote 
several fantastic books. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about uh, next week is the book he wrote with Cindy Meston called Why Women Have Sex. Uh, you should go and, and look up David Buss on Amazon or wherever you like getting books. And and check out, I've read all of his books, A Dangerous Passion and um, The Evolution of of desire, and I, I should have pulled them up before recording this, but I'm just gonna wing it with those two. And there's a third, um, the neighbor next door, murderer next door. Boom, that's all of them. Um, so see, I read them. I know them. You should uh, you should check all of them out next week. Him and Cindy Meston, the the co-author of his book Why Women Have Sex. Uh, come on and it's uh it's a really funny you know some of these episodes are uh are more toward the informative side and some of these are a little uh funnier toward the looser side this ep- this interview was was a really really great mix of both uh i i don't really the the point of this podcast for me is more about uh, having interesting conversations and curiosity and exploring new ideas and learning new things i put that uh far above um uh, uh, cheap laughs but we have we have a lot of good laughs in next week's episode as well of course it's just fun subject matter uh you guys you guys know if you like this show you like hearing about mating behavior I'm sure a couple of his last students have been on the show. My very first guest, Marty Hazelton, uh, who I nervously interviewed in my very first episode. We've come a long ways. And and Todd Shackelford, er, Sh- Todd Shackelford, who has been a guest twice on the program, uh, the second time with his wife, Vivian. And and uh, talking about sperm competition, we, which we touch on a little bit in next week's episode. So, so I, I just want to throw that out there because if if you know if you haven't listened to all the episodes, those uh, those might be good ones to go back and uh, and listen to. God Sad, another evolutionary psychologist, Doug Kenrick, another one. I, you know, we've 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 done a bunch of these, and um, uh. You know, it's it's always surprising how much more information there is out there. Uh, so surprising that it's no longer surprising. Does that make sense? Sure, it does. Um, all right, you guys are wonderful. Thanks for tuning in each and every week and for uh, and, and for listening all the way till the end, so you know what to look forward to next week and and studying. I know a lot of people they turn this off. They're like, we don't need to hear the three minutes of the blah 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 afterwards. I'll just tune in. But but some the hardcores, you're still listening. You're taking notes. <laughs> you're 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 getting books on uh, on the internets and your kindles and your audibles and and you're gonna study (laughs) for next week and uh so yeah you guys are awesome thanks so much talk with you next week say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like it might go something like this
Oh, Mr. Koff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Sonfeld, I'd love having you 